Let's pray. Blessed be your name, O Lord. You are the maker of this universe, and you are its ruler. Blessed be your name, Lord, because you reveal yourself in Jesus Christ, who is both fully human and fully God, who dies in our place and on our behalf. Blessed be your name, O Lord, as you indwell us and transform us um, through your Holy Spirit. We're grateful that we worship a God who not only creates transcendently, but lives in us eminently, who dies in our place and on our behalf, and then intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. So whether we come um, with expectation and joy this morning, or whether we come out of discipline in difficult times, we choose to bless you because you are good. You've revealed yourself to be good. You continue to show yourself to be good, and we can trust that you are good. To you be the honor and glory forever, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, uh, Community Bible Church. It's always, always good to be here, and I'm grateful to see you all. Uh, my wife and kids send greetings again. We have more house guests, uh, and so they're, they've shuffled off to <clears throat> our own church. Uh, but my daughters were, no, let's go to the other church, because they associate this church as their other church. Uh, but I think they'll be back soon, uh, in about a few weeks, since my wife will be coming back from Africa. We'll see how it all works out. Um, one of the biggest challenges for the church in every season and in every era is deciding what to do and when to do it. And I've watched us as a congregation here wrestle with that. Uh, the first times I started visiting this church, uh, Dave Dunkerton was still pastoring. Um, and shortly thereafter, he had retired. And your church spent time interceding and waiting on the Lord for an extended period of time. Who will you send to us? How will we decide? How will we know who to call? Um, after Dick arrived, um, with great joy and really a lot of delight, I watched this congregation begin to re-envision who will we become at this season of our life here in Northern Westchester County? What's our vision and what's our call? And it was a lot more than just, hey, we have a new logo at the end of this process. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> but you've been reorganizing your entire church life um, around identifying how will we meet the needs of the community around us, how will we engage them along lines of shared passion and vision, how will we become a church that actually witnesses in a deeper and newer way in this community. And it's remarkable to me, after this many years of preaching here, how different this congregation looks and how different the activities are. And in each of those decision-making processes as a church, you've had to listen deeply to Jesus, assess deeply the state of this congregation, and make choices of how to go forward. And I know it hasn't been easy. Right? The Church of the United States is asking the same questions all the time. Um, I'm a professional Christian because I work for University Christian Fellowship, so I hang out in that world a little bit. But it's fascinating to me how much of the conversation revolves around what does it mean for the church to effectively engage the cultural around us? How will we serve rather than just be served? How will we speak prophetically when we have a word from God? How will we act in prophetic ways, miraculous ways? so that people are pointed to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In the last week, much of the country has been consumed in reflecting on uh, the verdict in Florida around the Trayvon Martin case. And what's been interesting to me is you look at church after church in the larger national conversation, churches are wrestling with, um, is this a unique moment in time for the churches uh, who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord to say something about our core convictions about what it means to be human? 
about what it means that people are treated with dignity and respect, about what does security look like, what, does, what impact does race have and should it have in our national conversation. And in every one of these situations, part of what you're always wondering, what you're always asking, I think, is, is this the right moment and what's faith-filled rather than just foolish? And here's where I think Isaiah, uh, sorry, Ezra gives us a fantastic illustration of how to approach these questions. Because in every season, as Dick helped us think about last week, um, God is always moving to fulfill his own purposes, right? From Genesis all the way to Revelation, you have a clear sense of God creating with beauty, diversity, and harmony. We've talked about this before, and I know Dick has talked about it before, calling a people to himself who will be part of his hand and arm in renewing and redeeming creation until one day at the end of time, right, every people from all tribe, nation, language, and tongue are gathered before the throne of God. Creation itself is renewed. People are reconciled to one another and to God. Um, the harmony and beauty that God intended is restored. And throughout history, you see the story of scripture is God continuing to call and pursue a people for himself and working them until they become a faithful witness to him and a faithful partner with him. And the challenge last week as we watched um, a group of exiles returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple was a conviction that um, God pushes the Israelites past setback, right? Setback after setback to accomplish his purposes. He invites them to work diligently, to give themselves to participate with him because there's no greater joy and freedom that you could possibly have than by aligning yourself with what God is doing and actually will succeed in accomplishing. And then invites them, the Israelite people, to expect him to work in amazingly large ways to accomplish his purposes and to bring him glory. And then the challenge I think the Israelites are facing, right, is if you expect God to do these great things, if you expect him to do big things, if you have God-sized expectations of God, you can get in two common errors. You can get caught in them pretty easily. Um, and the church has a lot of aphorisms around that, right? You have the challenge of should we initiate or should we wait? There's a large school of thought that if you have faith, jump into the void and watch the Lord provide. Right? Step, over, step over the cliff and you will watch the Lord provide for you. And then there's the let go and let God group of folk. Let's pray. Let's just wait. And God will accomplish it if God wants. Initiate or wait. The other one is what's the difference between a faith stretching goal and just a foolhardy, foolhardy goal? And I suspect if you've hung around churches long enough, if you've been in a Christian fellowship, if you work at a missions agency, whatever your context is, you've been caught in those if you've ever been in decision-making body, right? You'll hit a major decision point, and there'll be a group of folks who say, in faith, charge. And they'll start citing, you know, let's look at the stories of Joshua and Moses and all these people who just ran off and did, right? Peter becomes the favorite apostle because um, he may have done it wrong, but he at least did something. And then you have the other side of the church saying, you know, God will provide the signs. God will do it. We should just wait. Wait on the Lord, right? And then they start, their, their favorites are the psalmists, right? Let's wait on the Lord. He will provide it, you know. Um, and then the faith stretching versus foolhardy folk, right? There's the people, when you propose a goal, somebody will say, that's too small for the God I worship. And you feel like, well, if I ask for anything less, if I suggest anything less, will you think I have no faith? And then there are the people who suggest a goal and you think, you don't understand reality, right? Perhaps you fasted too long and you've become faint. 
but something is going wrong. I want to suggest that Ezra helps ground some of this decision making. He won't offer us a clear example of what to do, but he sets the context of how we do it as a community seeking after Jesus. So the exiles have gone back in several waves now to rebuild Jerusalem. And at beginning of chapter 7, for the first time in the book of Ezra, right, we're six chapters in, Ezra finally appears. And verses 1 through 10 give you a little bit of the context of who he is. So it says, after this, right, after the Passover has been celebrated because the temple has been rededicated, in the reign of Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, son of um, Shalai, and then there's the long genealogy taking him all the way back uh, to Eliezer, the son of the priest Aaron, in verse 5, right? So this is a man who, um, by genealogy as well as by calling, right, by both nurture and nature, he has been dedicated to call the people of Israel to follow God, to listen to his word, and to sacrifice and worship him appropriately. This Ezra, it says in verse 6, went up from Babylonia. And to go up, right, is a common term in scripture. You go up to Jerusalem, up to the mountain, up to Mount Zion. It's not the tallest mountain, but it's an elevated place because that's where God said his glory would dwell, where his presence would be known. So this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord the God of Israel had given, and the king had granted him all that he asked from the hand, so, sorry, all that he asked for the hand of the Lord God was upon him. Um, now, what you need to understand is, right, it starts with after this, right, after the Passover, after the rededication of the temple. After this is, um, Ezra asks Artaxerxes for permission to return to Jerusalem, so to leave Babylonia, to go to Jerusalem, to resupply the temple with what it needed, articles for worship, sufficient finances to carry out the sacrifices, as well as you can tell from reading the letter that Artaxerxes writes in the middle of this chapter, um, a desire to restore the Torah, the, the scriptures of the Hebrew people to the rightful place. Because the, the command that Artaxerxes gives is uh, the letter that occurs from verses 11 through 26. And I don't I'm not going to take the time to read it. It's well worth the reading. But what Artaxerxes basically says is, I'm sending Ezra back to Jerusalem. And I and the court have given Ezra gifts to take to the God of the people of Israel. I'm inviting Ezra to take a free will offering of the Jews who live in the land and anybody else who wants to contribute to give <clears throat> to, uh, to, re to uh, reappoint the temple. And I'm sending Ezra back um, Let's see. Uh, and I'm inviting all of the treasurers in the governors around the area to also contribute. And then in verse 25, it says, And you, Ezra, according to the God-given wisdom you possess, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, who know the laws of your God, and you shall teach those who do not know them. And all who do not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on them, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of their goods or for imprisonment. Right? So, Artaxerxes is saying, go back, lead the temple, I'm giving you gifts, you'll have money to reappoint it, and then restore the rightful role of the Torah in the life of the people. Because they've been worshiping, and Ezra seems to be um, implying that though they worshiped with the right forms, the substance of their worship was a little empty. As one commentator put it, um, temple without Torah never goes well. It turns into an empty religion without um, an honest engagement with who God is as he reveals himself in scripture. Between the time that you ended last Sunday with the rebuilding of the temple and the worship of Passover and Ezra returning, there's a 60-year time gap that's 
um, accounted for by those simple words after this. It's 60 years after chapter 6 is over. If you think about being in Israel at the time, I don't know how well temple worship was going, but you'd be pretty happy to be a Jew back in Jerusalem. You at least had the temple back. If you're Ezra, I can't imagine he's really 60 at the start of this story. For your entire life, the temple has already been rebuilt. For your entire memory of what it was like to be a Jew living in Babylon, you knew your God was being worshipped appropriately in a temple that your people had rebuilt. Um, why go back now? What tips you over from, this is a pretty good situation, to I'm going to radically reorder my life and take the risk of going to the king to say, you know, I could use some money and I could use some people and I'd like authority to teach and if people don't obey the teaching, if I could kill them, banish them or confiscate all their property, that would be fantastic. <laughs> what tips Ezra over that edge? Um, what ends that long 60-year pause in the middle of the book of Ezra? <clears throat> and then what provokes the king to do everything that Ezra asks? Right? Because that's how Ezra reflects on it, both in verse 6. Ezra went up from Babylonia. Um, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord God of Israel had given him. And the king granted him all that he had asked. For, the key thing here right, is, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Um, what changes the situation and how do you know when to act and when to wait? How, how do you know that 60 years is now too long and it's time to do something? There are two things that you learn about Ezra in this passage, one of which is he's deeply committed to the scriptures. Um, look at verse 6, which you just finished reading, right? He was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And then look again at verse um, 27 and 28, which we haven't read yet. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors. This is Ezra reflecting on the letter that Artaxerxes had written, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and who extended to me the steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Um, the first thing you hear about Ezra, right, is that he loves the scriptures. He's immersed in them, and he shapes his life around them. He's skilled in the law of Moses, and then in verse 10, which we had read for us earlier, it describes Ezra this way, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach the statute and ordinances of Israel. Ezra is a perfect example of what a good disciple looks like. One who's able to make decisions in light of the right context, which is the scriptural story of what God is doing, right? Ezra isn't merely just learned in the scriptures. He doesn't just study the scriptures. Because head knowledge without practicing it leads nowhere. Ezra connects his belief to his behavior. So it says in verse 10, not only did he study the law of the Lord, but he actually did it. There's something you can only learn about who God is what his purposes are, and one of the only ways to do it is to put scripture into practice, because theoretical knowledge will never be enough. There are tons of people in the university world that I work in, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, who know a lot more about scripture than I do, who are great scholars of its history, of its grammar, of its larger context, but who don't put it into practice. And therefore, as you sit in their classrooms, it's easy to be led astray. 
They're very simple believers. I suspect some of the people that Peter and Julian meet at the nursing home when they go um, on a Sunday afternoon, who at this point, much of what they know has now been lost. Much of their deep knowledge of scripture is gone. But the decades of faithful obedience have so shaped their behaviors, their habits, and their qualities of heart that when you encounter them, and this is why I love visiting with the older saints when I get a chance, the fruit of the Spirit is so evident within them that they continue to witness to the living reality of a good Lord. Ezra knows the scriptures because he studies it. He puts it into practice, and then it says in verse 10, um, he's able to teach the statues and ordinances of the Lord, right? Implicit for all of us, I think, is a command, um, or an example at least, to study deeply, to put into practice, and then to commit, in my case, primarily to the next generation, as Paul seems to demand and beg of Timothy, to impart what you know. Because those of you who are teachers know better than almost all of us, right? You don't really know a subject until you're able to explain it. Until you can actually both do it and help somebody else do it. What you may have is not actual knowledge. It may just be habit. Um, it may be reflex. It may be deceptive. But once you have done it and you can teach it, you probably have some level of mastery in it. And Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Ezra is this fantastic example of somebody who knows, who does, and then who teaches. And I think this is pretty critical, right? Because when you can do all three, you're preserved from a lot of errors. Derek Kidner is um, a great uh, commentator, and he put it very pithily. He said, uh, Ezra, um, Ezra's study saved him from uh, this pattern of uh, knowing, doing, and then teaching um, allows Ezra to um, study which is saved from unreality. Uh, conduct which is saved from uncertainty, and teaching which is saved from insincerity, right? His entire life gets aligned in this way. And I think when you understand scripture in that way, when you know it, you do it, and you teach it, all of a sudden the context of what God is doing forces you and drives you to pray. And as you pray, you begin to pray God's purposes. You begin to pray God's plans. You're able to pray with the Lord's prayer, your will be done on earth as here as it is in heaven. Um, and the two examples I think you see that really bracket uh, a little bit of Ezra's life, that's what drove Daniel to pray in Daniel 9, right? Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, look, in the prophet Jeremiah, it says 70 years after the exile starts, God will send his people back, and um, nothing had happened. And so you have this amazing prayer where Daniel goes to the Lord and says, I see this in scripture. I confess like I was taught to confess. Now, Lord, act and do something for your own glory namesake. And then after a little bit of Ezra's time, you'll see in Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah does the same thing. When he hears about what's happening at Jerusalem and he realizes what Jerusalem is supposed to be like as the footstool of the Lord, as the place where his glory dwells, he fasts and prays for several months. And then finally he goes to Artaxerxes after praying again another amazing prayer where he confesses his sins and says, Lord, listen to this prayer. Right? The energy behind prayer, um, the importunity of it, for those of us who like those old words, that the church used to use, emerges not, I think, out of a sense of passionate excitement that we have, or just a lot of zeal because we can use a fiery, energetic language. True passion and importunity in prayer emerges when you look at the great promises of God and prophecies about what God intends to do, and you look at the reality of the world as it is, and the tension between the two of how they are yet unfulfilled drives you to your knees and then drives you into prayer. 
And I think it's this kind of um, understanding the larger context of what God is doing that allows Ezra at that moment, 60 years after chapter 6 ends and the temple is rebuilt to say, the temple is still not as it should be. God desires this to be the place where his glory is seen, and it's not. And he desires a people who will honor the law, and they are not yet. This cannot remain as it is. And out of a sense of outrage, I think he begins to move forward in faith. Um, when you understand the larger context of what God is doing because you have a deep understanding of Scripture, the choice of when to act and not to act becomes clearer. It's always right to speak to somebody about Jesus because he desires that everyone be saved and none be lost. It's always right for the church to extend itself on issues of justice and reconciliation because God's eternal purpose has been to reconcile a people to one another and then a people to himself. It's always right to invite somebody to say yes to Jesus, whether for the first time in committing themselves to him as Lord and Savior, or even at a smaller step of will you begin to just pursue who Jesus may be. Would you read a chapter of scripture? Would you at least take a step of faith to pray? Would you do something small? Because it's always right to invite people to say yes to Jesus. When you understand the larger context of what God is doing, it sets the smaller decisions in a slightly clearer place. I think um, for those of you who watched it, uh, on Friday when President Obama gave about a 15-minute talk explaining his own response to the Trayvon Martin shooting, um, it was fascinating how in the first five minutes he just framed uh, the African-American community's experiences of um, a ra living in a racialized society to help explain to the rest of the country this is why the African-American community is responding the way it is. Um, it was the kind of honest conversation that I've only had with uh, African-American friends over years and years of re relationship and friendship. And I thought what he was trying to do is say, if you understand context, it changes your interpretation of these events. And I think he did it reasonably effectively. And what Ezra reflects to us is when you understand the larger context of what God is doing, because you understand the story of the scriptures, it puts the specific decisions before you in a slightly different context. And we'll explain the responses of the people who are there. So Ezra is grounded in the scriptures. And then because he's grounded in the scriptures, he has deep confidence of God's purposes um, and has the wisdom to seek God's timing and then chooses to act pretty boldly. Um, you see in verses 6, 9, and 28, the repeated phrase, the hand of the Lord was on me, or the hand of the Lord accomplished this. Ezra was able to say, knowing what God wants and knowing the situation now and having prayed it into into fruition, when I acted, it was clear God was working. And as the text surprisingly points out, everything Ezra asked for, the king gave. Kings aren't noted necessarily for their generosity, and this king gave generously. Kings aren't noted for delegating their authority, and this king delegated his authority. Persian kings were generous with other religions, but this king said, I want you to enforce your law among all the people who live in that land. Ezra got everything that he had prayed for and asked for. Um, one of the reasons I think Ezra can do this and write what shapes our decision making is scripture doesn't just help us understand the context, but listening and studying the scriptures, teaching it and putting it into practice helps us listen to the voice of God. Right? Ultimately, that's what scripture is helping us do. Right? We are listening for God speaking to us in the scriptures and through the scriptures. 
And part of our discipline of reading the scripture, studying it, obeying it, and then teaching others to do the same is that we become increasingly attuned to the voice of God as he speaks to us through the scriptures. And that ability to listen to the voice of God in scriptures then allows us to listen to the voice of God as he leads us in those areas where scripture doesn't speak, right? Those questions of should we do this now or not? How do you know when it's appropriate to move forward? Should you go or should you wait? It's in part having listened deeply to scripture, knowing God's purposes and then choosing to act after prayer in light of those contexts. The other challenge, of course, is when is something um, faith-stretching or just kind of foolhardy? Um, Ezra gets permission to gather the people to go, gathers an offering, <clears throat> and then you pick up in verse 21, which was read to us, he decides and proclaims a fast there at the river um, to seek from God a safe journey for himself, for children, and for all the possessions. Because Ezra, you'll notice the book is switched into first person now, Ezra's reporting. Um, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and cavalry to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king that the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, um, but his power and his wrath are against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Um, think about what Ezra just did at that moment, besides calling for a fast, right? What he's basically said is, I've gathered men, women, and children. I've gathered a fortune of temple implements, gold and silver. I'm now about to take these people on a roughly 900 mile trip that will last for four months, where it's been publicly proclaimed that we have a lot of money with us. And then I decided not to ask for an armed guard. Because I want to demonstrate that I can trust God in everything. Now, the line between faith-filled and foolhardy is really close on this one, isn't it? Um, those of us who are planners, those of us who are risk-adverse would be like, that is crazy and poor stewardship of life and treasure. Right? And actually, Nehemiah, several years later, when he undergoes a similar trip, asks for an armed guard. What, and we know that Ezra is capable of making good stewardship risk-averse, careful decisions, because if you look at verse 24 uh, through the end of the chapter, as also says, okay, Levites, now that you're here, let's count everything that we have with us and write it down. And when we get to Jerusalem, I want us to publicly count it out before the temple treasury, every jot and tittle of what we've gotten, to demonstrate that what we left with, we arrived with, and none of it came into our hands, right? An accountant's dream, that system. What's the difference between faith-filled and foolhardy? Nehemiah seems, I mean, Sir Ezra seems capable of having both kinds of actions. Um, I want to suggest that Ezra's choice to not ask for the guard because of his belief and confidence in God's sovereignty, while it seems crazy, is actually appropriate, given what he's trying to do. Now, like I said, you all know I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and so I'm often helping students and staff make long-range plans as well as annual plans. And what we often challenge students to do is if you believe in a God of miracles, if you believe that God desires that all come hear about Jesus, make God-sized plans. The problem is so often my students um, translate God-sized into stupid. <clears throat> and I have to point this out to them, right? Let's make God-sized plans. So they're like, okay, we're going to grow from a chapter of 40 to 1,000 this year. And you just think, you 
you all would be good, lucky, God blessed if you grew to 50 because this group is not yet ready to reach out, right? It's in, I mean, it's unhealthy and you're, and so, but they go, oh, well, but it's God-sized. God can do everything, anything. And I'm like, I know, but um, there's a fine line and you all have crossed it <laughs> in my experience. Um, how does Neo, how does Ezra, I'm sorry I keep confusing the two because the stories are so interwoven in my head. How does Ezra know when it's right to be faithful and take the crazy leap four months, 900 miles, men, women, and children, treasure, publicly announced, let's just go. And I'm going to act like an accountant right now. How does he know the difference? I think the fact that he called for prayer and fasting is really critical. Right? He proclaims a fast and... Um, for the purposes of seeking God's protection. Let's be clear what fasting is not, right? Fasting is not an opportunity or way for the church to coerce God into doing what we need him or want him to do. And often I hear that kind of language in the church. If enough of us will just fast, revival will come. If enough of us just fast and pray, we'll get a pastor, we'll get a youth director, we'll, you know, we'll see conversions. As if somehow by fasting and praying, we're just twisting God's arm like, look how much we're suffering, you owe us one. And it's certainly not a bribe, which is the other way I often hear about it. If enough of us fast and pray, it's like putting enough coins in the jackpot machine. At some point, God will just spill out blessing on us, but you've hit the magic number, right? Like God's like, you know, if another four of you would fast and pray, I really would do something. But until you do, I'm just disinterested, right? All of those pictures of God dishonor him. He's a good God. He's the omnipotent, all-powerful God. He's not going to be manipulated by our behavior. And it doesn't just dishonor God, but it actually gives us far too much agency in what's going on. Um, I don't think God delights in our suffering. Uh, they're all hungry and they're in pain. I, can't, I love this. I'm going to do something nice for them. Right? He's not a mask. Like, what God loves is obedience and our love, which if it leads us to suffering, we embrace and God accepts, not because he enjoys the suffering, but because he desires our obedience and love. Right? Those of us who have children know exactly what that's like. I don't like it when my children struggle, but I love it when they do something hard because they love me and want to obey. And if it causes them suffering, I'm willing to put up with it. But what delights me is the obedience and the love, not the suffering. Right? I don't enjoy listening to the piano practicing. I mean, and Lord help us, right, if you have to do violin or clarinet in those first years. Um, it, it's the obedience and love which allows you to endure the suffering. Um, so fasting is not those things. What does fasting do? I'm going to do this reasonably quickly. Um, I want to suggest first, fasting aligns body, mind, and spirit around the prayers that we pray. I think our challenge is too often our prayers are really disembodied. We kind of intellectually pray them. And right, we've all been in a place where you're praying and you're just, you, your heart is so not in it, but you're able to pray because we've practiced a lot. Right, that's one thing church is very good at. Or others, when our hearts are fully there, but we're just terribly distracted. I don't know if I pray like that. Um, I used to try to, um, when I was in college, walk from my dorm room to the campus, which is about a mile and a half. And I was trying to pray the entire time. But like every, I don't know, seven steps, oh, look, what a pretty house. Lord Jesus, oh, is that a bird? <laughs> I, right, by, I would walk 10 minutes and be like, oh, I stopped praying. I was so distracted by what's going on. You can sometimes want to pray in your heart, but not get it in your head. And what fasting does is it aligns your body, mind, and heart together. So that literally as you're hungry in your body, your heart is saying, I'm hungry for you, Lord. And then your brain turns it into, I am really hungry and I'm going to stay focused on you. Right? It, it aligns all of who we are, body, mind, and spirit, into the same thing. 
We hunger for God. We express our dependency on God. We want more of him. It, it's why singing is so critical in our worship. What singing does, we, I don't know how many of you sing normally during the day. Uh, like you're just waltzing around the world like you're in a musical bursting into song. I know some of you do. Um, <clears throat> I don't uh, because people look at you funny when you do that. But one of the great things about singing and worship, right, is it's not just thinking great truths about God. It's not just speaking great truths about God. It's thinking, speaking, and allowing your heart to move so that body, mind, and heart, your entire being says, blessed be your name in good times and bad times, right? No part of you is distracted at that moment. So fasting aligns us, body, mind, and spirit, um, a little bit like the trip Ezra is about to take. I believe you're good. I think you're good, now I'm going to put my body into a place where I experience you are good. Which is one of the reasons I think he does what he does. Fasting doesn't just align body, mind, and spirit. I think it attunes our ears to God's voice. It's a weird thing. I'm not a great practitioner of fasting, I will confess right now. Um, I, I'd like to blame my people group as a Chinese person. Uh, we're, we love our food, and so probably all the more reason I should fast. Um, but. My friends who fast long and who fast well, who fast regularly, will tell me, and I absolutely believe them because I see it lived out in their life, when they fast, they listen to God better. They just are more attuned to hearing the voice of God, in part because they're cutting out other distractions. During the time they could be eating, they're listening. For those of you who fast during Lent, right, rather than watching TV or using the internet or spending money, you're, you're paying attention to what God is saying. And there's something about fasting that aligns our body and heart, but also attunes our ear to listen for God's voice. I think the third thing that fasting does is that it forces us to acknowledge our dependency on God's provision of daily bread. Right? When you're hungry, you realize how good God is. When you're hungry, you realize how much you want to be fed, but how much God is actually providing. When you're fasting, um, you realize how weak you are and how completely um, driven you are by just your physical desires, right? I, I fast, the, when I fast, it's amazing to me how obsessed I become about my stomach and how unable I am to resist temptation unless I work really hard at it. And I realize how weak I am and how desperately in need I am of God. And I think that's why, for Ezra, fasting sets him up to take this decision which would otherwise seem foolhardy and actually it's a demonstration of faithful action. Right? He's aligning body, mind, and heart, and spirit in the same thing. Um, he's acknowledging his dependency on God by this choice. He's attuning to his ears to God's voice to say, trust me, I'm going to glorify myself in this. And his ability to discern the difference between foolhardy and faith stretching, I think, is reflected in this choice to fast at that moment. And that's part of what fasting does. Um, the church is always faced with a decision of where you're going to go, right? There's always setbacks. There's always obstacles to overcome. There's uncounted number of ministry opportunities before you here at Ossining in northern Westchester. Um, there's a continual opportunity to live out the call that you heard from God a year and a half ago as you begin to reorganize church life and renew who you were as a congregation. Um, I want to suggest that underlying both scripture and fasting and prayer is the core discipline of how will you as a church continue to listen to God? 
right? That's what scripture does. It allows us to hear the voice of God. That's what fasting does. It allows us to hear the voice of God. If the process that you all began a year and a half ago ended when the committee that listened to God is now done with its work and we just have to live it out, you're going to miss the continued opportunities that God has before you. And as a congregation, how do we build in disciplines to continue to listen to how God is directing us now? So that's not just merely, well, we're living out the mandate that we wrote for ourselves as a congregation a year and a half ago or two years ago, but year by year, month by month, we're continuing to renew ourselves in God's continued and I suspect very consistent call to become a worshiping community that glorifies him and reaches out to the community around you. Um, building that in not just individually but corporately will be one of the ways that you as a church, I think, continue to delight in what God is doing among us and through you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you've been gracious to speak uh, to us um, in the prayers that have already been prayed, in um, the scriptures that have been read, in the songs that have been sung. And so I pray uh, for this congregation, which I know loves you deeply, pursues you faithfully and thoughtfully, um, would you continue to speak loudly and well so that they would hear? Would your Holy Spirit work in them so that they uh, could respond in obedience and faith? And would then you, Father, receive the glory and honor that you are due. In Christ's name, amen.